The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. As world leaders converge on Glasgow for the big UN climate powwow, we discuss one European steel town's difficult struggle to transition from the hydrocarbon era. Also, Unicredito's M&A options. Tune in. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from Times Square, New York City. This week, days before world leaders head to Glasgow for the COP26 climate conference, we'll take you to Taranto, Italy. That's the home of Europe's largest steel mill, formerly called ILVA. ILVA is notorious in Italy for polluting and poisoning many of Taranto's residents over the past decades, first under state and then under private ownership. The company, which was sold to ArcelorMittal a few years ago, now is being taken over by an arm of the government, is aiming to transform itself into Europe's leading producer of so-called green steel. But lots of Tarantinians, led by the mayor, want to shut the whole plant down. Prime Minister Mario Draghi wants to keep it alive. It's the largest private employer in southern Italy, and the steel it produces is critical to the northern Italian industrial engine. But as I wrote in what is a relatively long piece by Breaking News Standards, transitions are bumpiest in the middle. After that, Peter Thal Larson talks to our Milan columnist Lisa Yuka about the failure of talks between Unicredito, led by veteran dealmaker Andrea Orcell, and Monte de Paschi di Siena. Give a listen. So, Rob, both of us are going to be in uh, Glasgow next week for COP26. And one of the big issues is uh, what do you do about these really hard to abate, difficult to decarbonize parts of the world economy? And one of the really obvious bits is uh, steel. And you've been writing about Ilva, the uh, steel mill in Italy. So uh, what have you found out? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Glasgow, which is not a crime infested city. But it's it's just to be clear, I know that you and I've had this debate and I was afraid you might take me up on it when we get there. I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, so, you know, this this is a lot of the focus has been on renewable energy, of course, uh, of transportation, that kind of thing. But but actually, like 31% of the 51 billion tons of greenhouse gases released into the atmosphere every year is coming from these kinds of hard to abate things, steel, cement, concrete. And um, that stuff's really, really hard to deal with. Like you and I can decide, okay, well, we're going to stop driving our diesel cars or you're going to stop driving that Ferrari around Nottingham or whatever it might be and I'm going to go and get a Tesla and great we've we've it's relatively easy to take that slice of the pie if you think about it you know to replace that I mean not easy it's going to take a lot a bit of time a lot of money and whatever but you there's a replacement consumers will do it you know but you think about the steel that goes into that into the to your Ferrari or is it a Lamborghini what are you driving these days George Something that is not very good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, the steel is really hard to create. You you basically have to take iron ore, melt it at 1,700 degrees Celsius alongside oxygen and coke, which is like another form of coal. So it's like a double carbon dioxide whammy. I mean, according to yep. Bill Gates's book, it takes like 1.8 tons of carbon dioxide to be, is produced for every ton of steel. So yeah. the idea is how do you get around that? And so what I did is I went down to Taranto, Italy, which is down in the sort of, I don't know what you think of it, like in the heel, the sole of the boot of Italy, very beautiful part of the world. Um, but it's a it's a giant steel mill. It's, I think it's, a lar- it's the largest in Europe, single you know steel mill. It was built in the 60s. 
it's notorious for having poisoned many of the 220,000 residents of the city. Over the years, there was really poor stewardship by the state first, and then a family that owned it. There have been criminal proceedings against them. And anyway, but it's new owners, uh, well, sort of went bankrupt, and new owners uh, being the ArcelorMittals, who are selling it on to a sort of state government sort of division, which wants to turn it into this shining example of green steel. And, you know, it couldn't produce up from eight to 10 million tons annually. So it's actually still one of the largest. And they want to do this. But the story is quite complicated as I, you know, it's a it's one of these rare deep dives that we do here at Breaking Views. I haven't done one myself for a very long time. It's kind of fun. It took a few months to kind of get my head around it. But I went down there and talked to the people in the town and I talked to the mayor. The mayor had an ordinance to try to shut down the um, the basically the the one of the the furnaces, the blast furnaces. Yeah. Um, he was, you know, he was and it was upheld in court and then it was blown up by a, a sort of a court in, in Rome. The government doesn't really want this thing to be shut down. It needs it. I mean, the majority of a vast majority of steel produced in Italy is actually used in Italy. So if you think about uh, the Fiat or Ferrari or whoever it might be or the, the appliance manufacturers of northern Italy, yeah. they are quite dependent on this kind of steel. And it's not just scrap steel, which is sort of recycled. You need to, you know, bring in the the the, the iron ore and that kind of stuff and, and turn it into the into new steel. And uh, so it's it's this real fight, but the people of Taranto, they're kind of sick and tired of it. Right. So they're kind of um pushing knocking on an open door in terms of um uh, this is a fairly obvious thing to try and clean up. Right. Decarbonize. So but are they actually gonna do it well this so i i talked to the people who run the ilva it's now called acciaria d'italia uh, yeah like basically steel mills of italy and new ownership uh, the woman who's running it lucia morselli is is kind of like a she's like a villain and a hero depending on who you speak to right because the people like in town in the city there's a lot of people who just want it shut down it's poisoned too many people. There's been you know, high cancer, all sorts of other uh, uh, disease rates that are off the charts in play areas close to the plant over the last 20 or 30 years. In fact, it, part, part of this, the to- story I tell is about the soccer team, FC Taranto, which right. had this, um, they were, when I was down there, they were kind of in a winning streak and they were in the D, Serie D, like the fourth division. Over, over like the summer, spring and summer, they, they were uh, upgraded to the third division, Serie C, and they're now doing really well. In fact, uh, I think in the piece I wrote at the time, they were number six or something of their division. They're, they're, it looks like they're going to be number three in the Campione, so they might even have a chance, who knows, to go up to like Serie B. So this is kind of a big deal. They're not, they're not kind of, um, they're making light of the uh, poison yeah. there or whatever. I guess so. Maybe it's giving them superpowers. But but the, the, the company, for the first time, like advertised in the stadium. It was like a big deal. And supporters team supporters who are obviously not company supporters ripped down this giant banner and it showed up on on the internet a few days later upside down on the ground like it's a some sort of roman defeat battle defeat uh, victory signal they then uh, in the start of the season in september there was a whole bunch of supporters that were using these like banners or sort of scarves that were saying you know ilva is a killer that kind of thing so it's been really divisive but but I guess like the, the the government of Mario Draghi really is keen to make this uh, you know an innovative example of Italian innovation and industry and and the idea would be to to basically electrify the furnaces of course and then and to use renewable 
energy. And the main thought is, or, or I mean, that you, you've written about this and we've talked about it on various podcasts, is the use of green hydrogen, which yeah. is the hydrogen produced from renewable sources, would somehow be able to power, you know, this business, you know, the, a business that requires 1700 degrees Celsius. In theory, it's doable. And so the company's working with um, a, a big engineering firm in, in Germany called Paul Wirth and uh, Fincantieri, which normally makes ships, but also can do this kind of general contracting for a giant rebuild of a plant. And they hope, and you know, but it's going to cost like like billions. It's literally a two to four billion dollar euro guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I talked to a, a cabinet minister in the Draghi government who said it was four. The company kind of talks about one and a half to two. But, you know, it's a bit of a guess. And it's hard to say whether this sort of green hydrogen idea is going to work for steel. In theory, it does. And there is actually a uh, kind of a prototype or a plant that will be operational in Sweden in a, in a year or two that yeah. uh, is quite promising. But, you know, if you're these people in Taranto, you and like the mayor who I talked, who I interviewed and talked to, who's who really wants to wanted to shut the place down. You know, you've kind of heard promises from Rome. You've heard promises from governments before. You've heard them and you've seen, you know, and you've seen what's happened is you've got a, a real health and environmental disaster still that they're having to live with. So I, I accept that they are not going to uh, easily be persuaded. And, and so, the, what does yeah. the government have to? Is the, what's the government proposing to do in terms of money? Like, you know, are they are they going to help out? Because I mean, costs. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's a public problem, and the decarbonisation is a public problem. So, like, yeah. who's going to foot this bill? Because this is the problem with all green hydrogen things. They're like the it, it, all hydrogen, all green hydrogen installations and green steel, as it's called around the world it's just like yeah this is obviously the way to do it but it costs loads of money so who pays and how? yeah well that's so let's take that two to four billion i mean a lot of that money is coming from the recovery plan that was agreed as you know part of the the european right. recovery plan right. so there's right. i think there's about two billion that's in there for hard to abate industries at the outset but that, that it wouldn't surprise me if you saw more of that going into right. that into that bucket how that gets allocated to ilva is still not clear um and then you have you know the government is essentially injecting money into it's effectively buying out the ArcelorMittal stake. Yeah. So the ArcelorMittal paid a lot, way too much for this thing, probably. And then they were they got in there and they're like, oh, my God, this is a mess. <laughs> this is a mess. We did not expect this. I remember sitting in, I was at the uh, city hall with uh, the, the mayor, Melucci, and uh, he said, he pointed to the couch. He said, I had... Uh, uh, Aditya and his son on the your and his dad on the on the on the couch there and yeah yeah, yeah the Mittals there and you know they came they said we're going to do all this stuff for the town and then we never heard from them again blah blah so now what happened is uh, who knows and and I, I I'm sure that the Mittals also realized this thing was going to require so much capital expenditure got handed an extremely large bill and thought yes and they said hmm well the other option is to shut it down with ten thousand workers plus yeah. or eight thousand workers plus another ten thousand people uh, indirectly affect or directly affected and remember these are um, this is I should also point out this is a huge economic this is like at one point, this is like three percent of the GDP of Italy. It's certainly the largest private employer anywhere south of Rome and in the Mezzogiorno. So it's really important. So the government has basically had basically agreed to buy them out over time. 
in in there are a whole bunch of conditions that still need to be met, but they should have majority stake if those conditions are met uh, sometime next year. So that month, that's where the money's coming from. And it's it, it, the, the reason that we're writing about this is not because of the Toronto's football team or whatever. This is this is a sort of an interesting or not, or, or not just because of that. No, I mean that was kind of the fun part. And having having dinner with the uh, the, the general manager of the soccer club, who I kind of profile in the piece, uh, cool, yeah. really really nice guy. And although he did order when we went out to dinner this like plate of raw uh, shellfish, but mainly squids of different varieties, that was a that was a that was a test. We've all, we've all done it. Yeah, I normally like I'll eat anything, but you know the raw. Anyway, squid. but like yeah, so yeah, okay. So anyway, so the point is, you know, this is. A, this whole idea of transition, of energy transition, it's you know, it's sort of like, well, we go from A to B. But what you realize is the middle part is so hard. The ability to, you know, that the years that it's going to take to to convince ordinary people to make potentially extraordinary sacrifices or any sacrifice is is where this whole thing gets gets bogged down or falters. And I think it's just worth. I thought it was worth thinking about that and telling that story. As yeah. of course, all the world yeah. leaders get together in it's Scotland. Very interesting thing, I think, of what we'll probably, what we may see, and this may be one of the key things that come out, comes out of COP, is you, there's the kind of the, the the clash between the technocrats who can kind of they've done the sums, and you can see how you get to 2050 uh, net zero, and the politics, which I mean, this is what COPs always are: politics versus technocrats. But this this one is going to be particularly the smash is going to be particularly violent because. Um, the uh, it's pretty obvious we need to move quickly. The technocrats are right. We've got to do what they yeah. say. But um, easier said than done, right? Yeah, yeah. But in any event, I'll see you in Scotland. Yeah, and I'd like to point out that it's uh, Glasgow is in no way crime ridden or, or violent. Or I don't know who said that. Why do you feel the need to defend it, George? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll... Let's see how, how it goes when we get there. All right. <laughs> see you okay. next week. Wonderful. Bye. Bye. The seemingly never-ending saga about the fate of Monte de Paschi, the world's oldest bank, still isn't over because we've had another development in this never-ending story, which is the collapse of talks between Monte de Paschi, the Italian government, which is the owner of Monte de Paschi, and Unicredit, the Italian bank that was supposed to buy it. And it's also a rare case of Andrea Orcel, the Unicredit CEO, one of Europe's best-known investment bankers, walking away from a deal. So um, Lisa, just catch us up quickly. What's gone wrong this time? So uh, obviously, Andrea Orcel uh, was trying to do the best he could for his uh, shareholders, i.e. take over Monte de Paschi with uh, no risk and also deliver uh, a sizable return on earnings, at least 10%, uh, he has said in the past. Uh, but this, you know, uh, was is a costly exercise and the request he put uh, to the Italian government, i.e. a cash injection from the state of at least 6 billion euros, that, you know, became unbearable for the Italian government. Uh, you know, the Treasury thought this was too burdensome for taxpayers and the discussions completely collapsed. Yeah, so now one thing that's always puzzled me about this is why the Italian government is in such a hurry to sell. They rescued it, they pumped a load of money in, 
but they seem to have put themselves under a lot of pressure to to try and find some sort of deal. What's the reason for, for the urgency to sell it? And do you really think they need to sell it at all? So the initial thinking of the Italian government, uh, particularly this government who's led by Mario Draghi, was to try and meet a European Commission request to sell the bank by the middle of 2022. That was a request imposed by Brussels on Italy when Italy rescued Montebasque in 2017. So, so this, let's say, it's the starting point. However, in the course of negotiations and in the course of the year, actually, it became apparent that Montepaschi was maybe in slightly better shape than, you know, it was a year ago, just to give you an example. And this is because the economy is rebounding. Uh, you know, finally, the bank, you know, after many years of loss making is in the black. So um, as I wrote in one of the views, um, you know, the suggestion that came to mind to the Italian government was maybe to ask for more time. Indeed, as, as you say, you know, what, what is the hurry? And, uh, and, and this is probably one of the reasons why the negotiations also collapsed, because the plan from the Italian government now is to ask for more time, ask the EU for more time, and they will probably get it. Well, yes, and if there's one person who you would think have, would have the authority to go to Brussels and say, please, can I have some more time to sell this bank? You would expect it to be Mario Draghi, the former head of the European Central Bank and so forth. Okay, so so that's that's Montelipaschi. So what does Andrea Ocell do now? He's finally got this big job being the CEO of a bank, something he's wanted to do for a long time. Does he concentrate on just running branches more efficiently or is he going to do something else? So he is obviously a deal maker and everyone, including me, expect him to do a deal because a deal could be an accelerator of growth with you, for Unicredit. Unicredit has a growth problem. It has had it for years. Um, he, you know, you can try obviously to fix it without any M&A, but that would take time. So, so maybe worth looking around. What are his options? Um, he could um, wait and maybe resume talks with the government in, in a year on Montepaschi, a year or so, that's one option. Probably not the most likely option. And also, you know, any future negotiations will probably have to be done on worse terms than um, the ones he was asking for, um, you know, from the government. So the other option is to look in uh, Italy at an alternative target. This could be Banco BPM, for instance, similar size of Banco Montepaschi based in Lombardy, which is Italy's wealthiest region and where Unicredit is weak. Um, again, I mean, it's potentially an interesting alternative, but, uh, you know, the, the, the company is in, is in good shape, is listed, so any, any acquisition would have to come at market prices, i.e. With a, with a premium paid, you know, potentially a chunky premium paid on this bank. And the third option is to look abroad, because Unicredit is a pan-European franchise with a, with a large presence in Germany and also in Eastern Europe. Um, it's very difficult, as we know, to do cross-border deals, but if you do already have a presence, that could lead to synergies. So, for instance, in Germany, Commerce Bank, you know, has been mentioned for years as a possible candidate. The problem is that the top investor in Commerce Bank is the German government. So, you would need to deal again with another government, um, you know, and possibly have similar discussions to 
what he just had with the Italian Treasury. Yeah, no, that's uh, that, that sort of sums it all up really very nicely. I guess uh, uh, Andrea Rochel is going to have to employ his deal-making skills. And meanwhile, the saga of Montepaschi, which I think is apparently 549 years old, is going to carry on for a little bit longer. Um, Lisa, thank you very much. I'm sure this is a topic that we will come back to again and again. Indeed. Thank you very much, Peter. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Sharon Lamb in New York, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, too. Bye-bye.